Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Ronnie Cosman. And I'm Will Kynes. And in this episode, we're looking at the issue of violence in the book of Deuteronomy, and we'll be focusing on Deuteronomy chapter 7, as well as passages from chapters 19 through 21. And we're joined today by Dr. Matt Lynch. Dr. Matthew Lynch is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Regent College in Vancouver. He also did two degrees at Regent before his PhD at Emory. You know, I thought that maybe since you had done a couple of degrees at Regent, that you're mm-hmm. Canadian, A, eh? mm-hmm. but I guess, uh, are you or not? No, no, not, not, not Canadian. Like Grew up uh, like an hour north of Philadelphia, um, but uh, I, I wanted to go to Regent as a student uh, for grad school because um, I, I liked... Well, I, I really love outdoors, so part of the attraction initially was just mm. Regent's location on the coast near the mountains and all that. Um, but also, it's a, it's a broadly evangelical institution, um, but it's, it's not in the sort of Bible Belt geography um, where a lot of institutions are. And so I, I liked being out in the fringe of, of that world and, and having to like think through faith and theology and scripture in, in this type of an environment. So um, the geography, the ethos of region, uh, at, the, at the time I went, they were called the unseminary. And they, they would use that in their, um, in their marketing uh, to, to actually call it the unseminary. And I, and I liked that edginess to it. So um, yeah, for all those reasons, I, I was drawn here. And uh, but, but I'm not Canadian. Yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry about we that. Do, we do apologize a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, great. Now, uh, Matt is the author of two books on the topic of violence, which we're going to be talking about in this episode. Uh, and in a second, I'm going to ask him to show us those books. Uh, the first is Portraying Violence in the Hebrew Bible, a Literary and Cultural Study, and that's published with Cambridge. And mm-hmm. uh, we're recording this in September. And just yesterday, the Cambridge released a paperback version of that mm-hmm. book. So if you didn't want to drop a hundred dollars or whatever the hardback <laughs> is with the university press, it's now an affordable yeah, okay. purchase that Very you can good. make. Uh, the yeah, second somehow is the, worth- somehow the the cardboard on the hardback cover costs seventy dollars. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but like having a flexible cover just you know drops it down to thirty dollars. So it is a lot more so- affordable. It's amazing. And then the other one is Flood and Fury, Engaging Old Testament Violence. That's with IVP, and that's not even out quite yet. Mm -hmm. So could you show us those two books and differentiate them from one another? What are you doing that's different in the two? Okay. It just so happens I have them right here. Um, So this this is uh, Portraying Violence, the Cambridge University volume. And then I just have the cover here for Flood and Fury with IVP. Um, Very cool cover. I really like see it there. Um, When I printed this today, I I used I think I used save toner. And so (laughs) it's it's uh, it's got a brighter look to it um, um, in the final version. But, uh, yeah, they're they're two very different books. Um, So, you know, sometimes people write an academic book and then popularize it. uh, But this this isn't that at all. There's probably a, you know, five to 10 percent overlap in subject matter. Um, and the first book by that I published with Cambridge is really focused on a ground up question is how I like to talk about it. Uh, how do biblical writers think about violence as a problem when they're talking about it as a problem? What are the categories and ways of um, conceptualizing it that they use? And and so this is like part of a larger concern I had around the subject of violence in the Bible, and that was that um, oftentimes interpreters will rush in with the assumption, which is a fair assumption, that there's a problem of violence over there in the Bible, and we've got to deal with it. Um, But in some ways, the Bible has its own wrestlings and ways of talking about violence as a problem 
that isn't part of that conversation. So that first book is really bringing that ground up question, how does the Bible conceptualize violence in the first place when it's talking about it as a problem? And then the Flood and Fury volume is is the more top-down question that perhaps more uh, interpreters of the Bible are asking. And that is, what do we as readers of, of Scripture do about all the violence in Scripture that strikes us as problematic? Um, and so that's a more top-down question coming from us to Scripture. And and I take, it's called Flood and Fury because it's using the flood story and the um, Canaanite conquest as the two case studies in thinking through the problem of violence. I wanted to do case studies so that you could dig into the text to allow it to have its nuanced say in the matter. That's great. Great. And, and that's what we love to do as well on the mm -hmm. Two Testaments podcast, that dig nuanced? into the text. <laughs> and yes, try and be nuanced whenever we can. But in addition to writing books, Matt, you are also the host of a podcast on biblical studies, mm -hmm. on script podcast, mm -hmm. which I um, heartily recommend to others. Uh, and there are a lot of things that I love about that podcast, but one of my favorite parts is your knock-knock jokes. So <laughs> do you have a knock-knock joke for us? This will be the closest oh. we get to a speed round. Uh, right, do you have right, a knock-knock right. joke? Yes, although I, uh, you know, when I'm put on the spot, I, I often louse it up and like sit, give the punchline. So, um, so okay, uh, you've probably heard this one if you've listened to it. So, knock knock. Who's there? Two. To who? To whom? <laughs> nice. <laughs> Said like a true academic. I love it. Great, thank yeah. you, Matt. Uh, okay, we're gonna start getting into the text now. Well, you know, actually, before we dig into the text, oh, I do okay. have a kind of framing question that mm -hmm. I was just thinking about as you're talking about violence, which mm -hmm. is we have certain conceptions, right, about violence. Like mm -hmm. when we use the term violence, mm -hmm. we mean certain things, right? Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. when you say that you're looking at violence in the biblical text, are the, is the category of violence itself uh, the mm -hmm. same as how we would think of violence mm -hmm. or is, mm -hmm. does it imply other things? Do they consider things violence that we wouldn't or mm -hmm. things right. not violence that we would consider violent? Yeah, that's a, that's a huge question. And at some level it's, it's really hard to get at because anytime you use a conceptual category like violence, like what are you going to name as violence in scripture? Um, and, and would the Bible sort of push back and say, well, we don't include that in that category. So um, this is something I, I talk about in the beginning, in the intro to my um, Cambridge book. And it's called, there, there's a, a name for, or one way of framing it is, is concept inflation or deflation. And that is like a category like violence um, grows and contracts. If you look back historically or cross-culturally, um, and so it really depends on what time period you're looking at. And I use the example in the intro of my Cambridge book and talk about how, like in, in early America, um, beating your, your spouse, and it was always your wife, was called uh, wife disciplining. It wasn't included in the category of violence. The, do the domestic violence category hadn't been invented yet. Hmm. And so... Someone would say, I'm not acting violently. I'm just disciplining my wife. Now, of course, now we recognize that as violence. It's an act of violence. And there are other things, too, where maybe in contemporary discourse, we dispute what's included or excluded. Um, so take verbal violence and you know, the way that someone might... Um, call someone a, a name or a slur of some sort, is that an act of violence akin to, um, you know, a physical act uh, that's, you know, sort of a, a unwarranted coercive physical act of some sort? So this is something I had to wrestle with. And in some ways, I had to, like, think about, okay, when I go to scripture, what will I include or exclude? Um, and uh, maybe an easy example is the book of Joshua, where readers tend to see what happened to the Canaanites as violent. But there's really no clue in the book of Joshua that they conceptualized it 
as violence in the sense of something that's morally questionable or problematic. Um, it, it was warranted. It was um, uh, commanded by God. It doesn't use the term shedding blood or Hamas, um, the, the, word, the Hebrew word for violence, to talk about what happened there. Um, whereas in other texts, like Cain killing Abel, it uses the, the idiom to spill blood, which is in other contexts, you know, clearly uh, illegal uh, for an Israelite to do. Um, and it frames it in this way where it's, it's obviously a sin against God. So um, that was actually my, my question in the book is like, how do biblical writers conceptualize it? What do they include or exclude? And, and, and that was quite interesting because, um, you know, some, some things that you would think biblical writers would want to include, like the Canaanite um, conquest, <laughs> are not conceptualized that way. And then other things where um, you might be surprised that they're included would be things like an enemy taunting you or speaking against you in the Psalms and Proverbs, where that is included as an act of violence. Very interesting. Now, what first drew you to explore the topic of violence in the Hebrew Bible? And there was a convergence of events probably that contributed. When I was in grad school here at Regent, um, I was taking a course on Joshua, and this was right after 9-11. And the uh, Iraq invasion was imminent, a uh, two, 2003 invasion. And so there was a, a kind of conversation around violence that was happening in uh, North America and around the world. And, and all simultaneously I'm studying scripture and seeing that, you know, people were talking about like how scripture is used to justify violence. And, and so that was, a, that was a big part of it. There were some things that, that contributed to like me wanting to think through it before that is why I've been to Israel as an undergrad and, and just, um, thinking like visiting with a Christian peacemaking team in Hebron, um, which is involved in, in uh, issues of violence um, in, in Palestine. And, uh, and then once I started teaching in my doctoral studies and, and beyond, students are, were raising the question all the time. So was, I couldn't really ignore it. And <laughs> so I think that kind of combination of factors led to me wanting to think through it. Yeah. Now, when we get to Deuteronomy, how do you see Deuteronomy 7 and some of these other violent passages mm -hmm. in the book of Deuteronomy, if we call them violence, which is, I guess, an issue that we've just raised, fitting into the book of Deuteronomy as a whole? Yeah. So De Deuteronomy 7 is, is usually considered ground zero for the, you know, the most problematic violence in scripture, um, maybe short of the, the texts that, that use sexually violent language. Um, but Deuteronomy 7, which, which uh, I guess we'll get into in a moment, you know, talks about the need to totally destroy, wipe out, annihilate, exterminate, uh, however you translate this term, um, haram, uh, the Canaanites. And um, so, so this it's one thing I'd want to say at the outset in terms of how it fits into Deuteronomy, though, is that it's it's very uncompromising, potent language. So it mm -hmm. doesn't mince words. It's not nuanced. It's not trying to um, make you feel comfortable. So it's it's real in your face language. And it's part of a, a two sided of phenomenon that you have to see in Deuteronomy. And the other side is total uncompromising loyalty to Yahweh. And so Deuteronomy 6 really expresses that with the Shema and so on. Um, Hero is our Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with everything. And so mm -hmm. there's total devotion to Yahweh and total rejection of the Canaanites because of the threat of idolatry. So the, the two poles to kind of wrestle with in Deuteronomy are idolatry on the one hand and loyalty to Yahweh on the other. And Deuteronomy wants to say there's no middle ground. Um, you're either on one side or the other. And if you're on the idolatry side, 
you not only put yourself at risk, you put the whole community at risk and the whole land itself. So everything is at stake with which side you're going to you're going to choose. And that's Deuteronomy's rhetoric, too, of like there's life and there's death. So choose life. And um, yeah, so that I think thinking about Deuteronomy's rhetoric and realizing that Deuteronomy is drawing from earlier traditions in the Pentateuch, but just sort of ratcheting up the rhetorical potency, you know, to 11. Now, Matt, what for you is the most difficult uh, thing about to understand about violence in the Hebrew Bible? What's most challenging for you? Yeah, I think, I think to me, um, the most challenging is the, are, are the places where God commands Israel to enact violence in ways that go well beyond even conventional warfare. So. Um, I've never been in the military. I've never been in combat. And so, um, but I imagine that, that the violence between combatants in war is, is awful enough. Um, but that to then be commanded to run your sword through men, women, children, animals is, is just inconceivable. And, and so that, that God would outsource that to his people in ways that would presumably cause all sorts of moral injury to them, um, let alone the violence that they would enact in others. You know, like, why not adopt these children if that's the concern? Or, or you know, th there are so many other possible ways forward if, if it was about getting rid of the Canaanites. Um, so, so that's, I mean, that's a huge one. Uh, and then, like, in, in Deuteronomy 20, where it says, like, you've got to kill all the men in war, but you can take the women and children. Um, so there you've got, like, in, enslavement of people um, taking as take, taking women for your own sexual use. I mean, the, these are really difficult texts. So huh, it's tough. Yeah. <laughs> it is tough. And we're going to look at some of those texts right now. So let's yeah. take a deep breath. Uh, and then dive in. So Deuteronomy yeah. chapter 7, 1 and 2 says, mm -hmm. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy, and he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations mightier and more numerous than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must utterly destroy them. Make mm -hmm. no covenant with them and show them no mercy. So what is actually being commanded here in this passage? Yeah, I, th I think, you know, this, these, if you just had these first two verses, and we'll, we'll talk about the, the effect of adding three to five on top of these or three to six. Um, if you just had these two verses, it's a pretty straightforward command to, um, to completely annihilate um, these seven groups of people that occupy the land of Canaan where Israel was, was entering. And, and it's probably worth noting as, a, as an anecdote that this list of seven is repeated elsewhere, but sometimes you get six nations, you know, with the Girgashites omitted. And in one place in Genesis 15, you get 10 nations. So they seem like stylized lists um, of, of nations uh, it, it's an odd thing to not be specific if you're going to like ask to wipe out nations. So that itself maybe raises some questions about what's intended here. But in any case, you've got these occupants of the land and it seems like they were not to, um, you know, make a deal with them. Um, th they weren't to negotiate, obviously no treaties. And, and then on the other hand, the the sort of ethos that's to characterize this um, attack is the absence of mercy, um, which which is another kind of striking element here rhetorically because mercy is one of the defining characteristics of God um, in you know in Exodus thirty four for instance and so to to uh, eliminate mercy from the way that you carry out this attack is is uh meant to jar you i think 
Mm-hmm. And is there anything either in Deuteronomy or elsewhere in uh, in the in the Hebrew Bible that uh, fills out the let's say the identity or the picture of these nations to kind of provide mm-hmm. a rationale for that could justify <laughs> something yeah. like this? Yeah, there are a couple things. Um, you know, Genesis 15 says that the um, you know, God tells Abraham, you're going to inherit this land, but it's going to be 400 years. So sit tight. Um, and because the sin of the Amorites has not reached its completion. And, and so there is a sense in which what's envisioned in the conquest is an act of judgment on the Canaanites for their sin that's going to accumulate through the years. Um, and uh, that's that itself is a is probably a um, cultural disconnect for a lot of us as interpreters that sin would accumulate because um, I mean even within the Old Testament the sins of the fathers you know children are not to be judged for the sins of their parents but yet right. here you have the concept of accumulation but in any case um, it doesn't specify what they are uh, elsewhere we hear uh, that. Uh, in Deuteronomy 9, for instance, that God was not bringing them into the land because Israel is more righteous um, than the Canaanites. So they're perceived as wicked in some way. Right. Um, and then uh, Leviticus 18 and 20 talks about the uh, sexual sins of the Canaanites as having defiled the land and the land needing to be purified from that through the expulsion of the Canaanites. And it's set in the context of warning Israel not to commit sexual sins that would also defile the land. So, um, you know, uh, some people talk about like child sacrifice happening in, in Canaan. It's, it's a little unclear, like where it was occurring and who's involved. You know, there's this God Moloch that is connected with child sacrifice, which might be a, a name another name for Milcom, the God of the Ammonites, but the Ammonites isn't one of those seven nations. So Hmm. um, if, if it's child sacrifice associated with Moloch, then why not wipe out the Ammonites over there if that's the big deal? So I don't think we're meant to have a picture, like the Bible never says that like every single Canaanite sacrifice and their children left, right, and center. Um, Right. And, and in fact, and it's interesting in the book of Joshua, there's no moral rationale given for the expulsion of the Canaanites. Um, uh, and it doesn't even really, except for in one place, raise the issue of idolatry of the Canaanites. So so the when it comes to the actual conquest itself, the, the immorality of the Canaanites is not put front and center. Um, but mm-hmm. in apologists in try, who are trying to justify and say here's why god wanted them to why it was justified they tend to to maybe amp that up too much i think more than the the bible itself does so yes it does talk about that um but it doesn't always sit at the center really the threat here in deuteronomy though is idolatry so that's that's the big one and it's more the threat to israel and less so just a straightforward judgment on them yeah Okay. And that language of utterly destroy them, you mentioned earlier this word haram. Could you just yeah. explain what that is and how that's connected yeah. here? Sure. So the, the verb uh, haram, uh, and it's often written haram, the noun form of this, is uh, is a term that um, it, it's it's a little hard to define nicely. And so this is a good example of when you look at different translations, you'll see uh, the difficulty of translating this term. Um, that's why it's always good to read different translations. Um, so here in the in the NRSV, uh, it says utterly destroy them. Um, and, and that, that's a little bit vague. So it it seems to relate to um, the setting apart of, of something sometimes for sacred use um, and rendering it over to God. Uh, doesn't always connote that, but that seems to be some of its origins. You know, so in other places in the Pentateuch, like you could set apart an offering to God, not a human being, but just an offering as as harem to God. 
Um, so it's a way of dedicating something to God. And here it's, it's like the Canaanite nations are uh, devoted to destruction, which is another way of translating it. They're set apart and rendered uh, untouchable by the Israelites and given over to God in some way. So there's a sacral dimension to it where, and, and this raises other challenges with this text, <laughs> no where kidding. it's almost presented as a, a kind of act of worship. Um, and we see in Joshua, you know, like the, the entry into Canaan is, is one of worship and liturgy with the ark going before the people and priests, uh, you know, blaring the trumpets and whatnot. It, it is a kind of liturgical procession, at least the initial entry into the land. So, And this command here that we see in verse 2 is followed by verses 3 and 4, which include a prohibition against intermarriage with the people of the land. So I wonder if this yeah. affects the way that we understand that command, because on yeah. the one hand, if they really were completely destroying the people, this would be unnecessary. There wouldn't be any women mm -hmm. to marry that you'd be forbidden yeah. to marry. But on the other hand, it justifies this prohibition mm -hmm. against intermarriage by saying, if you were to intermarry, you'd be tempted mm -hmm. to worship other gods, which maybe that helps us understand the theological purpose behind this. Yeah. So how do you see those things holding together? Right. So, so yeah, now we're getting to the rationale and it, it all relates to the threat of idolatry. Why, why would you not want to intermarry? Well, it's because um, idolatry can be introduced through marriage. And of course, when Deuteronomy is reaching its final form sometime, probably in the exile or later, um, readers are hearing King Solomon in the background. He's a case in point of someone who married all sorts of women and mm -hmm. through them came, uh, you know, the worship of other gods or, or uh, people like King Ahab through, um, through, you know, his marriage with Jezebel and uh, Baal worship being uh, brought into Israel from the perspective of the text. So I, th I think that like, that's the concern. It's not just intermarriage mm -hmm. as such. Um, uh, but you're right that, it raises a question about what is, you know, how can you intermarry with Canaanites that you've annihilated? And there's a, a great quote by Walter Moberly where he says that a corpse does not raise the prospect of temptation. Uh, you, you know, people have wondered, okay, is our verses one and two rhetorical over the top uh, language? And then when it comes down to how you live this out, is the concern really about intermarriage and avoiding idolatry? And, and I think it, it's hard to solve in, in Deuteronomy 7 itself, but I think there are some clues in the text that we can get into to suggest that it's not as straightforward as it seems on the surface. Now, do the following verses reinforce maybe the rationale or give us more clues to the theological purpose. Uh, mm -hmm. So we read this in verses five and six, but this is how you must deal with them. Break mm -hmm. down their altars, smash their pillars, hew down their sacred poles and burn their idols with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God, the Lord, your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So does this suggest that the harem is just an allegory for cultic fidelity or worship of the Lord alone? Or what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I, I don't know if I would go full allegory on this. Um, okay. But I do think that this text moves us already toward what you might call a kind of spiritualized interpretation of the harem command. Um, and, and what I mean is like... The phrase uh, in, at the beginning of verse five there. So if you read that, but this is how you must deal with them. Okay, so this there refers to the stuff that follows, namely smashing, breaking, burning, you know, all sorts of vandalism. Um, and them there, this is how you must deal with them, refers back to the Canaanites. And so the, it, it's fascinating to me that Deuteronomy, after saying annihilate them, says, here's how you should deal with them, namely uh, the Canaanites. So the antecedent there is the Canaanites. And it goes on then to say you should uh, 
break down the altars and pillars and poles and, and idols. So the way to deal with Canaanites is to get rid of their religious um, paraphernalia. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so, so that suggests that there is perhaps a kind of interpretation of the earlier verses happening in verses 3 to 6. So 1 and 2 are kind of exegeted here. 1 and 2 are like the gut punch, potent, um, brutal language. I mean, this is pretty brutal too. It's still like religious and cultural vandalism, but it's different than genocide. Um, right. And um, so, yeah, that, I think that's that's maybe one clue in the text that there's more going on here. And, and we could talk about how later biblical writers or other biblical writers seem to interpret this command as well. And it suggests, I think, based on how later readers read this, that they're reading it this way. So it's it's not just that, um, you know, Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 6 suggests it, but that other writers are, are kind of looking back at this and saying, okay, the way to deal with Canaanites, get rid of the idols and don't intermarry. Well, why don't you take us to uh, one of those, one or two of those other biblical writers and sure. walk us through how they deal with this? First Kings 23 would be an example of that. Um, oh, no, not First Kings 23, Second Kings 23. There is no First Kings 23. Um, so uh, this is Josiah's so-called reform when he goes through and, and, and just does a kind of demolition job on all the, the, the cultic sites and idols that had to the, at that point filled the land of, of Israel. If you look, for instance, at um, the, the Hebrew terms used in Deuteronomy 7.5, so when it says, like, in 7.5, you shall natatz, or break down the altars. Um, 2 Kings 23, verses 7, 12, and 15 say that Josiah natatzed the altars in the land. Hmm. Um, Deuteronomy 7, 5, you shall smash the sacred stones, Shabar. Um, Deuteronomy, or sorry, 2 Kings 23, 14, Josiah Shabars the sacred stones. Um, you shall cut down uh, Gadah, the Asherah poles, and Josiah does that in 23.14. You shall burn Saraf, the idols, and Josiah does that in 23.4, 6, 11, and 15. So it's like Kings is showing us that Josiah is having, you know, discovered the book of the law uh, in the temple, is now enacting what the book of the law says to do, but interestingly, it doesn't say that he hunted down every last Canaanite in the land and haramed them. So mm-hmm. why, why is Josiah being depicted as faithful if he didn't eliminate all the Canaanites? Well, it's because he's, it, it seems that he's interpreting Deuteronomy how it's meant to be interpreted, namely um, avoiding and eliminating any threat of idolatry in the land. And, um, and there are other senses in which um, another one is Second Chronicles 31, and there King Hezekiah um, in 31.1, he natatzes the altars, he, he uh, breaks them down, he smashes the sacred stones, same verb, um, he cuts down the Asherah poles. So, so uh, Chronicles, in a way that Kings does with Josiah, Chronicles does that with Hezekiah to present him as a Torah faithful king who gets rid of the the idols in the land. And and one of the most um, interesting, perhaps, is is in uh, Joshua's uh, farewell speech to the Israelites in Joshua 23 and 24, where, you know, having just... uh, initiated the conquest, and of course there were all kinds of Canaanites left in the land, his word to them was that they should avoid the idols that were among them and avoid the threat of idolatry. And so for, for Joshua at the end of it, in his farewell speech to be saying, not annihilate every last Canaanite, show them no mercy, but avoid the idols and don't intermarry, that suggests he, that Already within the book of Joshua, there's that kind of reading 
of Deuteronomy that we're talking about here, namely a kind of, um, I don't want to, like spiritualizing maybe gets the wrong sense because there is a very physical dimension to it, uh, but it is a sort of mm-hmm. spiritualization of, of the, the, like the spirit of the law um, of Deuteronomy. There are other texts. So when you well. read, yeah. yeah. So when you read this in Deuteronomy, on you, do you kind of you still retain that there's it's still kind of a command of uh, violence against the the Canaanites and the you know all the other inhabitants and the cultic you know this mm-hmm. kind of de- yeah. devoting the cultic object to destruction or kind mm-hmm. of or do you want to place the emphasis on the on the devoting the cultic objects and the idols? Yeah, it, it's it's like I, I there's an, there are enough. I guess I would say there's enough in Deuteronomy seven that makes me wonder if it's not already being reframed right then and there. Okay, so mm-hmm. so one and two being that literal destruction, but then three to six coming along and saying here's how to interpret that. So there might be an okay. interpretive layer already within Deuteronomy. The other maybe intriguing things is that. Even the command in one and two is set in the context of them already being in the land. So it says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you're about to enter, and he clears away many nations before you. So this is all after the conquest. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's not even describing how the conquest should take place, which is kind of surprising. And then it says, this is how you should deal with the Canaanites. Um, right. Smash the. But to, back to Joshua, which you mentioned yeah. at the end of the book, you've got mm-hmm. what Joshua says. But towards the beginning in Joshua yeah. six, you've got Jericho, and mm-hmm. after Jericho is conquered, Joshua, we're told, kills everybody in the city, right, and wipes yep. them out in a way that sounds a lot more like verses one and two. So what do we do with that? Yeah, and and the, like totally agree. And so Joshua is actually <laughs> Rahab is Rahab is spared, right? right? Yeah. It's just Rahab and her family are right. spared. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, yeah, Joshua is another matter, um, and Deuteronomy <laughs> twenty to some extent. Deuteronomy twenty doesn't have the same nuance that I think seven okay. does. So okay. Deuteronomy twenty is just like leave alive nothing that breathes. It doesn't right. doesn't really give the wiggle room that you see in seven. <laughs> Deuteronomy seven is kind of like maybe the hermeneutical lens for interpreting the laws that are to follow. Um, but you're right, Deuter- uh, Joshua has, the when it describes the actual conquest, it seems to depict, in some cases, Israel wiping out, for the most part, all the Canaanites. Uh, a literal enactment of Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2. And, and actually, nothing about 3 to 6, oddly enough. Like, it doesn't describe them smashing down the pillars and the idols. The mm-hmm. stuff that you would think, like, a Deuteronomic book would want to really draw our attention to. But I think Joshua leaves us in the discomfort of mm-hmm. the, the fact that you can still read this literally. I mean, you can, you can see why a Israelite reader, later readers, would would see what's happening in Jericho and say, yep, that's being faithful to the Torah. Um, okay. But then there are other things going on in Joshua that I think are really fascinating and wonderful and, and problematize a straightforward genocidal reading. Okay. Right. Now, after these first six verses of mm-hmm. chapter seven, the text zooms out a bit to put them in the broader context of the Lord's covenant with Israel. So let's zoom out as well and just look at the rest of the chapter. Is there anything else Hmm. in these final, these other verses, verses seven to 26 that can contribute to the way we understand the way that violence is portrayed here? Yeah. So, um, uh, Deuteronomy seven, seven and eight are, are really trying to make sure that Israel doesn't have a kind of cultural or nationalistic superiority as they go about this conquest. So, uh, it, you know, it's like the, the Moses is quick to say to the people here, it was not because you're more numerous that the Lord said is hard on you um, and so on. Um, and, and so the, the people are to remember who they are uh, as a, as a people, a, a small people. Um, they're, they're a, 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 a tiny population 
you know, the, the big numbers and exodus aside here. Um, so they're, they're uh, a small nation coming into the land. The, the other thing that I think is interesting is Deuteronomy 7.22, where it talks about the nations again. And it says, the Lord will clear away these nations before you. So there it's not really an action of Israel, little by little. And so, you're, you know, you, if you read 7, 1, and 2 on on its own, you'd think it was a kind of a blitzkrieg that's envisioned here. Like, go in there, wipe them all out, annihilate, show no mercy. Then 7.22 stands in tension with that and says, the Lord's going to clear them out little by little. You'll not be able to make a quick end of them. Otherwise, wild animals will become too numerous for you. You know, because, you know, if you kill everyone, then you've got lions and... <laughs> All sorts of <laughs> large creatures coming in that were still in the land at that point before the Romans, you know, wiped them all out with their gladiatorial, uh, you know, interests. So, um, and then it goes on to uh, talk about how God's going to hand over their kings to you. And, and, so, and that's what we do see in Joshua. There's a real emphasis on the defeat of kings in these, uh, in the conquest accounts. Um, so anyway, there's, there, there are interesting elements later in the chapter that raise further questions. All right. Well, let's look at a few other texts in Deuteronomy that um, deal with violence as well. So first, uh, Deuteronomy 19 uh, mm -hmm. recalls what we've just looked at in chapter 7. Mm -hmm. um, and it says in 19 verse 1, When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land uh, the Lord your God is giving you, and you have dispossessed them and settled in their towns and in their houses... Then it instructs, you shall set apart three cities in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. You shall calculate the distances and divide into three regions the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that any homicide can flee to one of them. Mm -hmm. How do these cities of refuge help uh, deal with violence in Israel? Yeah, so uh, this is kind of the... Um geography of justice that I think Deuteronomy is really interested in. And, and that is to make sure that everyone has an equal chance of making it to a refuge city if they unintentionally kill someone. And it goes on and gives an example of like if you're cutting down wood and the, the axe head flies off and kills someone, and then you can imagine like that person's brother is going to like come hunt you down, then you book it to one of those refuge cities and and then you're held there so that there can then be a fair trial to make sure that to see what, what the nature of this was. You know, it turns out that you had it in for this person, then you're going to be handed over and executed. But if it was unintentional, then you're protected from the the um, it, it talks about like the the heat of the moment kind of taking over an Avenger and they kill you. And, and the risk that Deuteronomy, the thing that Deuteronomy wants to avoid is unjust blood being shed. Um, and, and you can, you can imagine like if you build your society around like avoiding unjust blood being shed by the arm of justice, that would look very different than, um, you know, if you're only looking to protect um, against people who kill, right? So, so there's a there's a provision for um, manslaughter here, hmm. and and I think that's um, quite different than it goes on in verse 11 and talks about someone who, uh, with enmity, lies in wait and attacks someone else. Um, then that person is handed over to the avenger of blood. That's the person who enacts the um, capital punishment and they're, they're put to death. And you get that same phrase, show no pity. So, um, you know, they're treating homicide different from manslaughter here. And then at the end of the chapter, to reinforce a prohibition against being a false witness, we're told that if someone is a false witness, the judge should actually levy the penalty for the crime on the false witness. Yeah. And then in verse 21, we get this famous statement. Show no pity. Life for life. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Hand for hand. Foot for foot. 
And then we get very similar statements in Exodus 21, verse 24, and mm -hmm. Leviticus 24, 20. But this seems yeah. barbaric, right? Yeah. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. How should we understand this language? Yeah, this is this is an interesting case. And, and this kind of goes back to the verbal violence I was talking about earlier. So a malicious witness, let's say, you know, uh, will I accuse you of murder? And and then it turns out that, like, I was just trying to get you in trouble. So I'm a I'm a false witness. Um uh, age checker, or um, uh, a other phrase that, that Deuteronomy uses in other texts is a uh, aid Hamas, so uh, a violent witness. Mm -hmm. So the law treats what I've done as an act of violence against you. And so I'm judged for what I accused you of doing, falsely accused you. And, and so, and, and this I think is because the the law and and we see it in poetic texts and in, in proverbs as well treats verbal acts like this as a kind of violence um and and the rhetoric even heightens that so so for instance like i talked about verses 11 to 13 where it's describing homicide you have someone who lies in wait and then they attack and literally it's they rise against someone use the hebrew verb kum um, and takes the life of that person. So you have like the, the sort of preparation rising up and attacking. Um, and, and here you have in, in verse 16, this malicious witness comes forward in Hebrew. It's literally he cooms, he rises, um, comes forward and attacks. Um, and, and the, it says you should do to him what he had meant to do to you in verse 19. And the Hebrew there is what he had schemed Zamam. Uh, he had mm. plotted. So there's the same elements. Lying in wait is like plotting. The cooming is like rising up. And the speaking violently is like striking someone down. So so Deuteronomy is, is creating this kind of rhetorical structural parallel between the act of malicious verbal violence, a false witness, and a homicidal act. And so it really... It, so that's why it uses the the principle of equivalence then in verse 21 to talk about what's being done here. So the, the principle of equivalence is that, you know, a, a punishment should fit a crime. It shouldn't exceed the crime. Um, so uh, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth is the idea. Uh, it, it's, it's the basic principle in any justice system of uh, equivalent punishment for, for a crime. And it's, and it's to avoid, and it's a limit as well. So you're not to take a, an eye and an arm and a leg for a, an eye. Um, it's to be equivalent. And, and so by establishing this principle of equivalence, it gives a kind of baseline for justice. Now, in, in a particular case, a victim's family might say, we'd rather have financial compensation than the death of this person or something like that. Um, so how it was worked out in practice might be different from what this law stipulates because there is a lot of latitude in Israel's judicial system when it came to the actual particulars of a given case. Um, so, uh, but it, but it's kind of giving the legal framework here. Now is the, um, the reason that one is one is another reason that this is the speech here is violent or the person is, is viewed as violent because they are, or the reason they get the consequence, I should mm -hmm. say, of of death, because they are basically trying to kill the person by their false witness. You know, mm -hmm. the end result of if their false uh, yeah. testimony succeeds is that that person who's being falsely accused dies, right? And so absolutely. then they just get the consequence of that upon them? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Which says something about the, the power of words, right? Yeah. 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 These words can actually kill. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And That's so what, th this yeah. is why, like, when you read Psalms and it talks like, hide me from the tongue of the enemy, it's, yeah. you could, I don't think it was always this kind of scenario, but it would probably included the false accusations that can just ruin not only your life, um, it can ruin your family. So it could be mean death for your family. And, and so the implications are profound for a false witness successfully 
accusing someone. Okay, we move now to chapter 20, where we have a number of rules of for war. Um, there are another, this is really actually really interesting, but uh, first the priests are instructed to give the army this kind of uh, pep talk in verses three <laughs> to four. And then the officers are instructed to send, if you've built a new house, you know, and you, you're worried about missing out or something like that, you go, you can go back to the new house first. If you planted a new vineyard and you haven't enjoyed its fruit, you know, go back and have some of its fruit. If you've been engaged and not married and you're worried, you know, that perhaps you might die in battle and then the woman becomes married to the wife of another, well, go back, you know, go back. What does this tell us about uh, the approach to war here? Yeah, it's it's so interesting that um, Deuteronomy makes all these kinds of provisions. Um, well, first of all, I think it tells us that it takes fear in warfare seriously. So both at a pragmatic level um, of not wanting people who are going to like hurt the morale of troops to be part of that. Right. But then on, on at the level of the person in question, taking seriously the fact that that war inspires fear might be debilitating to someone. So there's so there's that aspect, which is, uh, I think, absolutely remarkable. Um, instead of you know, you'd think in Deuteronomy, it would be like, you know, you should ruthlessly eliminate that fear from among you. Like, just don't fear <laughs> or something like that. Deuteronomy takes seriously the fear of the Israelites. It, there's that practical matter. And I think it also shows the value it places on the domestic uh, sphere as well, like the the home, the family, the, the, the land. So mm. um, attending to marriage is is a is a kind of core issue for the Israelites and attending to your vineyard um, is is absolutely important and to be taken seriously as seriously as going to war. And and so you don't have the kind of elevation of the warrior uh, in this in this text above the the vineyard worker or domestic yeah. life. And so I you know I I find that intriguing and um and it and the fact that this doesn't sort of foreground the um, you know training for warfare or anything like that. It's it's all about like the all the reasons that you might not want to go to war. In the interest of time, let's deal more quickly with the rest of chapter twenty mm -hmm. so that we can get to chapter twenty one. So yeah. two other things in chapter twenty that are interesting related to this question. The first is verses ten to eighteen, where we get two different sets of commands mm -hmm. for how people cities that are conquered should be treated, whether depending on whether those cities are within the promised land or not. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the chapter, we've got this really fascinating bit about trees and how yeah. trees should be treated. So mm -hmm. thoughts on those two aspects of the chapter? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So cities that are far away, in other words, not inside the land, if they're going to war, they're to offer peace first um, and before laying siege to it or attacking. And so that's, that's a, uh, you know, diplomacy there before anything else. Um, but then it says, by contrast, if they're near, you're to wipe them out and you get that kind of uncompromising rhetoric again. And and this is the background to the story in Joshua where the Gibeonites pretend like they're a nation from far away so mm. that they can enter into a covenant with Israel and then Israel is tricked and then they end up having to defend the Canaanites against the Canaanites, which is fascinating. Um, but uh, it, it's also like I haven't looked into the the scholarship on this, but I I do wonder when it gives the caveat there about the the towns that are near, um, in verses I guess it would be like sixteen to eighteen, um, where it says like they're to be wiped out. If that's not a later interpolation, because um, in, there's an intriguing text in Joshua where it says that none of the nations, none of the Canaanites made, um, you know, uh, agreed to peace terms with Israel. Um, so it suggests that like it was a possibility for them. But then it goes on to say because the Lord hardened their hearts against them. It doesn't say like, mm -hmm. but of course they couldn't because they were near nations. So mm -hmm. there might be a kind of complex back history to the way that Joshua and Deuteronomy relate on this subject of peace terms or not. Um, so that's maybe just a little, a little side note there. 
Um, but yeah, you get into the end of the chapter, then it, it um, is concerned with the preservation of trees. And, and, um, and it even has that, that great line there, like, are trees in the field human beings that they should come under siege from you? Like, yes. uh, which is, yeah, just a beautiful moment, I guess, in, the, in an otherwise challenging text where the idea is, well, first of all, that's your future food source. Um, so it'd be stupid to cut down fruit trees. And um, I, I've also, also also thought by way of parallel about the kind of value system that Israel had where, um, you know, vineyards and olive groves and fruit trees, these things take a long time to grow. And, and so you're doing almost generational damage by wiping these things out. And I, and I think of like mm -hmm. when Ahab wanted to take Naboth's vineyard and it says that he wanted, he's like, I'll give you good money for it because he wanted it for a vegetable patch. And it's this like distorted value system that Naboth had, or sorry, that Ahab had, where he wanted to plant a vegetable patch where there had been a vineyard. A vineyard's far more valuable. Um, so he just has mm -hmm. this kind of skewed system. And it's reminding Israel, I think, in that moment of, of the importance of, of trees, like think long term here. Hmm. Now, in the next chapter, in chapter 21, there are more instructions for war. So we come back to uh, rules for war. Uh, mm -hmm. Verses 10 to 14, give the Israelites permission to take wives from their captives, which yeah. is interesting in light of what we saw earlier in chapter 7, right? The mm -hmm. prohibition on intermarriage. Uh, for, how does this fit with the harem command that we saw? And what do we do with this ethically? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's probably um, it, it's a challenge. It stands in real tension with the other texts. Now, presumably, this would be of a, a nation that's distant to Israel, although that's not entirely clear. But it's not okay. like the nations that are distant distant to Israel are worshiping Yahweh. So presumably, the right. th same threat would obtain. And and so I. I I guess I would just say there's a real point of tension here in Deuteronomy over that issue that I haven't really resolved or really even totally thought through. Uh, this is a really challenging text, um, allowing you to take the wife of another person for yourself, forcibly against her will, presumably. Um, and now it, do, it does kind of give this like period of mourning. And so I, I guess that creates something of a, buffer or like you know you can't just it prevents immediate rape but that's right. a little consolation right um sure but that might be what it's mitigating to some extent so some of these laws are just um dealing with realities of war and trying to put limits on them and others are setting forth an ideal and this is definitely on the other end of the spectrum from from an sure. ideal yeah uh, all right. So in the interest of time, we're going to skip over the passage earlier in chapter 21 mm -hmm. that I just really love, which is when you find a dead body and it's just out there and nobody knows who killed this person. Yeah. Um, but in ancient Israel, instead of starting a Netflix documentary or a true crime podcast, what you're supposed to do to deal with this yeah. uh, is to find the closest city and take a heifer, break its neck in a wadi, yeah. and then have the elders wash their hands and say, we didn't have anything to do with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's very well, We've just unpacked. You've just read the I've whole just, thing. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> an <laughs> Yeah, dealing with unsolved murders and and it like because even if you don't know who's culpable, the the land itself still bears the guilt of this crime, and so hmm. you've got to deal with. And this is where like Israel's understanding of violence differs from a lot of the modern understandings, and that is that like it affects the physical world, um, it affects the hmm. community. And so there's something that still needs to be dealt with, even if you don't have the perpetrator. And that geography of justice is important here, too, because you're measuring to the closest town. And so, like, where things are in relation to each other is important to Deuteronomy uh, for maintaining justice. Okay. And maybe, so maybe the fact that it follows right after that section with the trees at the end of Chapter 20, mm. there is that, that interrelation mm. between 
the land and yeah. the violence in the land. To finish up our discussion of the text, uh, we got a couple questions from Twitter. We mm -hmm. let people know that we were going to be interviewing you, and um, a couple of people asked some questions that they would love for us to ask you. So I'm mm -hmm. just going to throw those at you and see what you think about them. One of them is from Cody Float, and he was asking about the question of analogy. So I think what he's getting at is divine accommodation, the fact mm -hmm. that um, could we see this language of violence as mm -hmm. God accommodating himself to the way that humans think and perhaps in the ancient world as well? Is that a way that we could think about some of these questions related to violence? Yeah, I, I think that you're always dealing with accommodation when you're dealing with um, like God working within a particular cultural system um, to enact justice. And so... Um, th there's no circumventing that reality. So God is uh, accommodating God's self to the particulars of Israel. And, and the challenge is why he might not, in a particular instance, like move them along further away from aspects of violence that we don't like. Um, and that's so there's always a mystery that surrounds even the act of accommodation. So I don't think accommodation solves a whole lot, but it is a re reality that, that I think is, is certainly a part of understanding um, God choosing a particular people at a particular time to work with them. Another question came from Ben Thomas, and uh, he's a cyber investigations intelligence analyst. So I think we might okay, be careful I'll choose about my words what we carefully. say here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he was asking if these texts could help us think through what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. So yeah. maybe your answer will influence some kind of um, the outcome of the war. American yeah. response here. Yeah, I know. So All right. Well, what do you think? Does this text apply? Yeah, this feels like a Russia. Are you listening? If you're listening, um, <laughs> same type of thing. So, um, you know, I think. It's easy to see the parallel between the conquest, for instance, and what Russia is doing to Ukraine, having this, this, especially with the Orthodox Church kind of sanctioning this violence um, in some pretty awful ways. Uh, I guess the one thing I would say is that uh, it's worth looking culturally or historically at the conquest. If you set the story of Joshua in its purported context of the time when Egypt is still holds sway over Canaan and these sort of Egypt backed functionaries are ruling these city states in Canaan. Um, and if Israel is in fact numerically inferior, they're a small nation going in um, really the conquest is kind of part two of the Exodus. You know, they're, they're mm -hmm. back, they're um, dismantling the, mm -hmm. Egypt-backed system in Canaan. And so that's quite different from Egypt invading uh, uh, the land of Canaan, right? So so I think like thinking about who Israel was at that time, according to the text, doesn't resolve everything, but it's quite different than, than a sort of uh, Russia-Ukraine scenario. And I think the people, the thing that people really struggle with this is the idea that there could be some kind of divine sanction mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for a war, which, mm -hmm. as you're suggesting, Russia has tried to claim for yeah. itself. Mm -hmm. So can you make that direct leap? I mean, what's wrong with what Russia is trying to do in, in terms of mm -hmm. making this kind of argument? Yeah, I mean, it's I, I think. There are all kinds of things wrong with it morally, but I, but I guess <laughs> um, I don't even know where to start with that. I, I guess I would say that um, if if you look at the the conquest in Joshua as something that was uh, a template for future imitation, then then you could conceivably say that this is this is a paradigm for God's treatment of God's enemies and, and meant to be replicated. And I think there's nothing in the story that suggests that this is, um, you know, a pattern for reuse later. If anything, if there's any kind of pattern that's picked up, it's the elimination of idols um, and not the elimination of the Canaanites. And, and that's where the other biblical writers go. Um, and, and arguably where the new Testament sort of picks up this theme as well. So 
the the patterning in scripture doesn't really allow for that. Great. Now, Matt, at the end of each of our episodes, we ask our uh, guests to recommend or blurb something for us. It could be a movie. It could be a book that you read recently or wrote recently. Um, <laughs> or, you know, someone recently actually showed us their the wallet that they handcrafted out of duct tape, which was also really cool. Oh, wow. Uh, is there something you'd like to recommend to us and our listeners, Matt? I, I really liked, I mean, thinking of a a TV series like the, the green planet, um, PBS series. It's a BBC, uh, production like okay. blue planet and planet earth and, and, uh, David Attenborough, um, who actually, I don't know if you can see in the background I have, that's David Attenborough on my shelf there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so the, the green planet is like, so you know how a lot of nature documentaries have like the conflict between animals and the, the hunt mm -hmm. and the attack and all that kind of stuff. So green planet does that <laughs> except with, um, time lapse of plants and the way that they battle with each other. Oh, and so you see like the vine that's growing and then, you know, whipping that thing around to attach to something. And then the struggle that takes place between plants and also the, the cooperation that takes place as plants interact. Uh, cause there's a lot of interesting work done on that. Um, so I don't know. I, I found that to be a really fascinating series summer. You don't have a David Attenborough impersonation that you can do, do you? I, I don't. I, uh, but I, I will say, so, so here's, this is the small scale one. We have a large, a full size one in our house that my, my wife got when I was away one time and I came home at midnight and there was this guy standing in our living room. Like I just saw his profile, he scared me half to death. And so frequently he'll sort of move him around in our house and, and, and scare me. So David Ambrose, I have a, I have a sort of mixed relationship with him. <laughs> well, I love those David Attenborough documentaries as well, and my yeah. kids give me a hard time. Um, and we will all try and impersonate him. I can't do it well, but yeah. um, you know the the biblical scholars sitting yeah. on their podcast <laughs> discussing the Bible, and at the end of the episode, they always ask for a rating for the podcast. So if you wouldn't mind uh, giving your best five star rating, we would be much appreciative because it yes. does help other people learn about uh, the podcast and hopefully get to know texts like Deuteronomy better. Hey, that so was well you. done. Nice. <laughs> that was impressive. Thank you so much, Matt, and thank you all for listening. The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zellner, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion. 